Oh, it's crazy. Um, my idea of research didn't fit within this school. Not even a little bit. Design, design, design. Design Research Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Design Research Podcast of the Design Academy Eindhoven. My name is Arif Kornweitz. I'm the co-founder of Yaya Jan Nene. It's an online radio dedicated to the arts. And I'm here in Eindhoven with Agata Jaworska. Hi, Agata. Hi, Arif. Agata, you're part of the Knowledge Circle at the Design Academy. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and also about this podcast. Yeah, the intention of the podcast is to go into research from the perspective of being inside of the project. So through conversation, we try to understand how practitioners, researchers, students at the academy understand and develop research and contribute to it. And um, the Knowledge Circle is an um, organization that operates across the different departments, both in the bachelor and the master departments. So that's uh, the idea is that we can transcend the, the sort of the departments and so forth and see actually the relations amongst them by uh, speaking to people from different departments. And myself, I'm an alumni of the academy myself. Uh, I studied at IM Masters, graduated in 2007, and last year I was the acting co-head with Tamarsha Freer of Design Curating and Writing. And we're here with Vera van der Burg. Welcome. Thank you. You graduated last June. From which department? Uh, I graduated from Contextual Design, a master department. What does that mean? Well, nobody really knows. In the end, it's a very broad uh, interpretation of what you think contextual design is. But the general things I got out of it, it's more mainly based on your role as a designer slash artist within the world you live in and within the topic that you choose. So it's a bit more of a reflective way of, I see, designing or doing projects and also very research based. So either research in material ways or other types of research, which is uh, basically the fundament of uh, the final outcome that you present during graduation. Yeah, we want to talk about this research process. But before we do, could you give us um, a short summary of your graduation project? What did you do? Well, I started off in my graduation year with the idea that I wanted to um, discuss artificial intelligence and mainly focusing on a subcomponent of it which is called machine learning basically algorithms that are trained to learn and perform as humans basically and i focused on object recognition algorithms and in a nutshell or one sentence my project was uh, basically about creating a object recognition algorithm that would mainly focus on subjectivity so I decided that I wanted to create an algorithm that was mainly subjective and mainly focused on emotional experience and that kind of stuff. And what did you present at the end of the process? So the process was a bit in two parts. So first I worked with an object recognition algorithm that I was able to train myself. So basically these algorithms are used, for example, to predict what they see on an image so, for example, if you show them an image of a chair, they can say this is a chair because they were trained on data sets filled with images of chairs. But I decided not to focus on an objective thing like a chair, but more on subjective categories like uh, feelings and emotions. So instead of training it on the data set of 10,000 of chairs, I trained it on a data set that I thought was, for example, love or jealousy or... And then I used that algorithm to analyze objects and things that I've created in quite of an intuitive way. And by that sense, I used my own algorithm to interpret my own created worlds in the form of a still life. 
And your idea of research that you had at the beginning yeah. and that you have now, how did that evolve? Oh, it's crazy. Um, my idea of research didn't fit within this school, not even a little bit. I was used to research from books and mainly it was really easy. They said on, on university, they said, okay, here you have your book, you read uh, chapter one to 10, you, you uh, learn it by heart and then you have an exam and that's it. And here... When I read a text, it was never about replicating whatever is in that text. It was way more about being able to transform it to, into something else. And that was something that I really didn't understand in the beginning. Um, like, how do, does a designer think? How does a scientist think? And how can you kind of make those two people within yourself or in outside communicate with each other? But the first thing you described is learning, right? Yeah. But you also published an article. You co-wrote a, a paper. Yeah. We were Googling you. <laughs> and... Um, That's a different kind of interaction, right? Yes, Because there true. you produce something new. That's yeah. Is that closer to the work you did here? In a way, but also not, because it's also a very small component of, of your entire bachelor career, which I did. And also, yeah, you're still stuck to so many rules, you know? If you want to uh, publish an academic paper, you cannot say anything. All the time they said to me, yeah, you write way too funny and, and nice. You have to write more academic. And I was like, yeah, but I don't like that. Because who's going to read this? And they were like, yeah, well, no one, no one probably, but, but you have to because it's the rules and that's the rules. And that's, that's frustrated me more and more. So yes, there was some freedom in, in, in doing research for a thesis and the research, but then the actual production of it became, was just for, to me, just as like dry as writing an exam, basically. And how did you develop here then? How did you research here? I did a lot of different things, especially in the first year, really figuring out how to do that research and then realizing research is not just research how I know it, but it can be everything and then being panicking, panicking because <laughs> like, what do you choose? For example? Well, material research was a whole new thing for me that you can just say, okay, I'm fascinated by this. I don't even know how to do it. I don't even still don't, don't really know how to do this, but like, I don't know, my classmates had all these sample tables filled with stuff and different forms. And I was so amazed by that, calling that research. I was like, why is this valid research? But then I started to think, what is valid research? So you start to get in this. But for me, I always try to get some theoretical background. So reading a lot and then trying to find something from that. But it, the moment I actually started to make things or make it visual, I really needed to let go of the theory because those two things didn't really combine. So for me, it was, like, I think, always a combination in between reading and then stop reading <laughs> and then making and then look at that and then see where the connections are, I guess. And how would you see, because for you, this path constituted first, you know, going coming from one field and then, um, you know, entering the one here at the Design Academy... How, how would you reflect upon these two bodies of research and their coexistence? And I mean, you personally brought them together in your way, but of course this wasn't, you know, your path was not everyone's path. So in a sense, it was not the structured way of learning, right? It's something you had to first panic about and then figure out by sort of being put into it. So how do you, now that you've sort of gone through it and you could imagine that this could also go differently, um, how do you, how could you envision these forms of, knowledge being brought in being brought together i've been thinking about this a lot because i've ob obviously had a lot of uh, critiques or a lot of frustration moments on both schools as in that 
I felt it was difficult for them to coexist in a way. And that there's a lot of ambition for them to exist next to each other. But it's really difficult because it's, it is a really w different way of thinking. Um, but it's true what you say. I mean, you if you come from a different background and you end up in this design slash art school environment, you really have to define it yourself. But it's also really much about finding out where your talent is within your legs, basically. So you're, you're something that you cannot do so basically you missed four years of missed well, I don't even want to call it missed but you didn't have these four years of art school but you did have something else and how can you use that within the frame of this school yeah to get where you want to be how did you feel supported or not also very good question I've there were a lot of moments I didn't feel supported but I think the non-supportive part was obviously also support because it's a push Dave there was a moment where they almost kicked me off school. And they were like, yeah, um, we think you should reconsider schools because uh, you're, you're, uh, don't really, I don't think you understand what design is. And then I was like, does anyone know what it is? I mean, and then I got really confused, obviously. I still, if I look back, I do have the feeling I had to do it all myself, but I couldn't have done it any other way. And because I did it all by myself, I got where I I. I am now, but you need some kind of, um, I guess, some kind of, yeah, motivation from deep from within that you really want to do it. And that's maybe something that I can criticize is that they maybe can offer, could have offered a little bit more time to figure stuff out and not scare you away with, we will send you off, you know, kick you off school because that pushes on you. But I think in that sense that maybe they could have been a bit less harsh from the beginning because you need to figure it out, right? <laughs> so then having to present something that is design, how did you do that? Like, did you make certain concessions or how did you translate your research into a presentation that was, let's say, satisfying to people within the academy, but also allowed you to feel okay with it, let's say? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, you make me go back to my first year, uh, which was at some point when they I had this moment where they were almost ready to like, okay, you have to might have to reconsider the school where I was like, okay, well, fuck you guys, I will make a chair. So I decided to make a chair. And then I passed, which is obviously a very <laughs> Yeah, a very uh, typical thing, right? And then they were all like, oh, this is amazing. And then next month, the, the trimester after I continued, I made ceramic cups and I passed again. Um, but the thing for me in both of these projects were uh, not necessarily the fact that I made a chair, but like what for me this chair meant. And I already was working, like when I reflect on it now, I was already working with this type of idea of object recognition because I created objects apparently that... Um, always operated on the border of is it a recognizable thing is it an unrecognizable thing you see a chair but do you actually see a chair I already was working with these questions in my head so that developed into my artificial intelligence thing having said that I think it was very necessary for me to make that chair in a way also because reaching your inner artist or reaching this creative uh, fire that you maybe have inside yourself you need to get there some at some way and I got it through this chair But it's in a way, obviously, <laughs> your response is a bit remarkable that you have to make a chair to pass within design school, basically. But then 
if you continue, you graduate cum laude on something that is definitely not a chair, but more, way more research project. So I don't know. It's super interesting because it seems like, given your, your story, it seems like this chair became a Trojan horse for education here at a Design Academy. And I guess if we unpack the notion of the yeah the Trojan horse to sort of like feel acceptable accepted and to feel like you fit in yeah. uh, and enter and then actually use it to your own genuine research pursuit. So in that sense, you were able to bring your ideas and your knowledge and your you know the 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 area of research you were familiar with and you wanted to continue with, but you had to put it in the language of a chair. And so there was a kind of aesthetic familiarity or a certain kind of, and maybe like on the outside, it looked like you had made a leap into a different field and now you became one of us or became like a designer, a familiar designer. But yeah, in a way, it seems like it was like an, uh, a successful entry of your own agenda. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. It is also an interesting comment on object recognition algorithms that kind of depends on your understanding of an algorithm, right? So I think we're speaking about like very like technique algorithms at the moment but if algorithm means kind of the ways and the processes we have to understand and make sense of what we see then i guess you kind of tested the algorithm of the academy and yeah. then added your own added my own and that's exactly how I, but the thing is that's something that happens when you look back right and then i see it and then like oh it all comes together and all makes sense I was never able to ignore the fact that I had my four years of bachelor's in neuroscience. And I did for a bit to make this ridiculously big chair that also looked like a Trojan horse. It was out there and huge and it was like <laughs> very ugly also. But it's funny that you, that you say that, that there was this moment where I needed to speak the language of the traditional design school or at least what this department was before they could trust me basically to be like, okay, you will be able to come up with something that we can consider an end project of this education. It worked out for me. <laughs> but uh, coming back to your notion of like uh, using familiar language, I mean, your final result, which is a kind of installation, a still life installation. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're using tropes from the past and so forth or your trajectories. Yeah. Um, and also, I would say, even with the language you're using, when you talk about your project, uh, your subjectivity, um, uh, your inner artist, the, the inner artist the artist in you these are all notions of the yeah of, of an artist a traditional idea of the artist yeah. um, so it seems like you are employing um, and bringing together different languages yeah where, where would you like to take this in terms of your practice this is a very good question also um, something that I you, you don't really start thinking about until you kind of end reach the end of the year and like okay but what if they ask you who's your project for or like what are you how would you continue on, on it and also especially with the notion that research is never finished and that there was just this moment where I just was like okay I have to decide to stop the research now and say it's this is what it is for now and then I can maybe continue on this line but um, with this specific project for me what the most interesting about it was that I was able to speak about a technology that is quite on the first hand seems quite complex and difficult for people to understand uh, that don't have any relation with it but with my project I was able to speak about artificial intelligence self-learning algorithms machine learning data sets without people even looking at the actual technology or looking at the code but we could just have a conversation about it by 
looking at what I did. And I think that is where I also want to take it is that I think my way of working, design or art or however you want to call it, um, is a mean to make something a bit more graspable or something complex as this artificial intelligence a bit more better like visually understanding and and open the open it up because the most frustrating part for me in the process was that nobody really knew what i was talking about the moment they started to hear algorithm they kind of were like Ugh! and they would they didn't even listen anymore but by looking at the work and by seeing the frames by seeing the percentages you could just talk about it and I think that was something that I thought was a very interesting approach and I want to continue on being able to yeah use it as a translation in a way and could you for the listeners who don't see your work could you sort of give a verbal description of what they would see yeah the idea was that of, of what you see is um Basically three screens um, in which I filmed three different still lives. And the still lives are composed of objects that are kind of on the verge of something that you recognize and something that is a bit different. So all these objects that are in there has a bit have a bit of an oddity in it. Then um, there's an extra layer in that it's not a still life as in it's still, but I filmed them. So there is a certain time element in it. And um then you see the object recognition algorithm scanning or analyzing this image. So you see frames coming up, boxes around the objects, and they would come up with an estimation of what it is. So it would say like 95% persuasion or 21% loneliness or something. But in the still lives, there are little elements that change. So there is something falling, there's something moving, which in the end changes the whole meaning of, of the... Uh, yeah, of the still life. So basically, I don't know, it's a bit of a fuzzy... It's really, there are so many elements and I don't want to describe them all, but that's basically... Uh, How did you deal with uh, defining parameters for capturing and describing emotive information? I don't... Yeah, I just... I just... It was all kind of this... It sounds less interesting than it might be, but it was just basically coming up with a lot of emotions that were close to me at that time. So I really used it in a way to also some kind of therapy almost that I was in this emotional mood. And then I was like, what kind of emotions do I feel? What kind of words can I think of this? And then I would write them down and would just create the data sets based on these words. So basically uh, I there was a moment where I felt really heartbroken and there are a lot of emotions coming up there. And then I just intuitively used that to create the data sets. And then every still life, is basically an outcome of one emotional state of being. So one of them is, for example, uh, the total image is, um, I don't know, like uh, I wish I was with you or something. And there are all these small elements that is like jealousy and loneliness or envy or I don't know, melancholia that all build up together to this whole, let this final emotional state of being. I mean, the way you describe your process seems quite different than the one you would have learned perhaps in studying neuroscience <laughs> in terms of trying to understand how emotions work and yeah. what parts of the brain are activated or uh, how to d define them and describe them. And of course, there are languages within that field of study to describe emotions. So I'm just curious about your choice to, to or, or what that was for you and what it meant like to com do a completely other approach. Was it intentional? Yeah, it was mainly more a personal thing than I think. If I think about it now, it was just like, okay, if we look at this cup, 
we see a cup, but we don't necessarily see a cup. I also see the third floor and I also see, feel Monday morning and I, and I feel, I smell the coffee and I feel tired when I look at this cup. So this cup means so much more to me than just seeing a cup. And I thought this emotional component of object recognition was extremely interesting because it's so human, only human based. And also, for example, anthropomorphism, you know, that we have this connection to things that look human-like or animal. I thought it was really interesting because it's us, <laughs> only human humans that do that. And to me, a very important element of object recognition. So that's mainly why I think I focus on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you make, if you're planning on creating an AI that's able to substitute human perception you cannot just use po photos of chairs and then re think that this algorithm can recognize every chair you know uh, and then when you take it even further uh, if you have self-driving cars that have to select, see what is a child and, and a tree and, and we have all this experience you can make an interpretation and, and for me making an interpretation means having an emotional connection to the world and that's what I wanted to employ I guess within the project. What do you think is the value of your research for research in computational studies? Uh, well that's also funny because I worked with some programmers and every time I pitched them an idea, they were like, yeah, but it's never going to work. It doesn't work like that. Um, you cannot think of data sets like this. But then I did it anyway, and it worked. It always The algorithm would always give me something. I would ask him something, and it would just give me something. So to me, the question of, yeah, but it doesn't work wasn't a valid, or the, the, the comment wasn't valid because it did work. It just wasn't correct, but then what is correct? And that's also what I think was the difference in between these programmers and me is that I was able to ask a question, what what if it could work? And they would already stop there. They would work the other way around. So like, okay, so we need to get to this very reachable answer. We don't ask any questions, what if? We just, we just go there. Yeah, so the project does start from you and uh, does pass on some of your internal workings to the machine. Yeah. So in a way you're automating your emotional experience. Yeah. Uh, what is that? How could you imagine the automation of your emotional experience being applied in other ways? Do you see sort of other applications of the database you have created? Not yet necessarily, but I do think the idea of um, having a data set that's not based on something so dry as just photos of the same thing, but having a database of data sets that are all different things, that the whole subjective objective uh, thing is not even valid anymore because objective is also subjective. So it becomes this whole fuzz of, of, of like, what do you, when is the data set a data set, you know, like what does it contain? And I think in that sense, it is interesting to think about what can be in a data set and how many photos need to be there or how, what is, when can you say this is enough? of it, thinking in how limited actually it, you you make your algorithm in a way because you can only give it up to this much data or something, then also think like, then what do we do with it? Um, so if I would use my emotional data sets, then I can think of what kind of goal does this algorithm have instead of thinking it should perform exactly as a human being. Because in the end, I don't think 
that's ever gonna happen that we can do something or make something that works exactly the same as we do so i think in that sense it could be interesting to think about how can you work with this subjectivity emotions different type of categorizing your information other than just the obvious basically you said subjective is also objective right and i was wondering if you could think a little bit about how that would resonate in the different fields that you've worked in because you've worked in computational science but you also have a background in neuroscience and then now you're also a designer <laughs> um And I have a feeling that that means different things to all of them, right? Yeah. If you could talk about about how this statement, subjective is objective, is also subjective, so these are not mutually exclusive, how that would resonate in these different disciplines, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, it's a philosophical question that is there for as long as philosophy exists, I think, and science, it's like... I mean, if I look back at my bachelor, I mean, they, they say you are doing objective work, but then you start doing it and you realize, no, 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 and it's not true, you know? And then you get here and you, you become, you do the opposite and you become extremely subjective and you can create a whole world or a whole truth based on your own fascination. And it's valid if something comes out that we all agree on that it's nice or interesting, then it's, so it's, it, to me, it was always positioning myself within these two things because I would never be able to create an entire project merely based on my small own fascination and doing research that is within my own reach or my own living room basically I would always want to go to something that is further and then maybe you call that ob more objective but that's also not the case um, so yeah I don't know Uh, I think for me personally, I would like to be, as always, somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think that what would be interesting to reflect upon, and not per se right now, but like is, is also the problematics of um, deeming something to be objective or subjective. So actually those, the categorization of those terms and um, how that can be, a, that, how that is a relative position and how it is, you know, our judgments of these things is, based on how where we are situated within them so when you were in science you were highly like uh, aware of how subjective your research was uh, and then all of a sudden you're in the design academy and the design academy points to the the science world and says wow that's that's objective stuff yeah. you know here we deal with subjectivity and you need to cross the line you know to come to the other side and so i think there's like a, a great path for you in in, yeah. in terms of trying to deal with these uh binaries yeah. and i think your project does um, deal with these binaries. And perhaps I would say, yeah, um, to what extent, because now you're using like oppositions in your work. You're, so you're using the framing of opposites in order to um, develop your work. And I, I, I would wonder at what point um, the n sort of referencing these binary oppositions is no longer necessary. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the whole thing. I mean, that's the whole thought experiment also what I have is basically how can you put something subjective as being a human being 
uh, um, like with the, on a how can you place that on a scale that is super objective? Like how can you you know that is so what is what do we think is objective? Oh, we think percentages is objective, and if you have a frame around something, it's objective, right? Because it has some mathematical visual click, and that's why I used it. But then when you see ninety eight percent persuasion, you're like, yeah, but what can that even be? You know what it, what does that mean? And 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 I think yeah, in the end the project at least shows that objective and subjective is, is, is it's, it's meaningless almost. But in that sense, visually speaking, when I look at your work, I do think you exploited the aesthetics of subjectivity and objectivity. I mean, you almost cannot be more extreme than vanitas that are being looked at by the, through machine vision and that are computating and uh, you know, bringing out numbers and words and so forth. Uh, so in that sense, you use the authority of like, uh, you know, objective looking language. And um, yeah, I wonder to what extent that was reflected upon in your department. To what extent was that your Trojan horse? Or do you see that as like, where do you situate yourself in, in relation to the fact that you did exploit these um, aesthetic uh, categories and their meanings? Yes, I can I can say one thing to this maybe because within this whole year of research the first half or maybe three quarters of a year nobody really understood what I was doing but they just trusted me that I knew and I had all these photos when we had presentations photos and then some I wrote little notes with them what the algorithm said because I couldn't show it to them on the computer because it would take for ages so I had to kind of already visualize what the fuck I was doing and they just kind of took it but I did and all the questions that they gave me, I was like, you don't really understand what I'm actually doing, but it was fine because they kind of trusted me as in the school with they. And then this made me really realize I need to find an aesthetic or I need to find a, a, a format that they understand what I'm trying to do. And then the first version of The Still Life was an actual film of one and a half minutes where I would just go through my house of mess and then the algorithm would do these boxes and they would like, boop, boop, boop. oh, that's uh, that's loneliness. Oh, that's agony. Oh, that's la, la, la. And the moment I start showed that, they were like, oh, that was what you were talking about. So, yeah, I think, and I could go on with that. And then I came into like still lives and la, 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 because I thought everything, every object has a coded meaning and all this kind of stuff. But it was funny to see that you needed some kind of um, language that everybody can agree on or accepts which is vanitas because well lots of people know it and lots of people find them aesthetically pleasing so you already have this yeah kind of trick i want to don't want to call it a trick but like in a way kind of like reference for them to already engage more with 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 something complex as apparently ai and also to my tutors but now hopefully also to <laughs> the world <laughs> Thank you so much, Vera, for that conversation and for that insight also into your daily life and how you look at the world and emotions, <laughs> but also at the Academy. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Design, design, design. Design, we research podcasts.